Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. My mother, when she found out you were coming on, she's a big Democrat, she says, he's dangerous. He's an anti-vaxxer. He says that autism comes from vaccines and you must challenge him on that, Jesse. Is my mom crazy? Well, uh, I do believe that autism does come from vaccines. But I think most of the things that people believe about my opinions about vaccines are wrong. I, you know, all I've said about vaccines, we should have good science. We should have the same kind of testing, placebo-controlled trials that we have for other, every other medication. Vaccines are exempt from pre-licensing placebo-controlled trials so that there's no way that anybody can tell the risk profile of those products or even the relative benefits of those products before they're mandated. And we should have that kind of testing. Now, I ask you the following question. Is this the guy who conservatives should be pushing for the next president of the United States? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. I'm going to say it until the cows come home. I don't think that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a bad person. I think he's just wrong. And if you ask me if I would vote for him, the answer is no. Well, would you vote for him or Biden? I'm never going to get that chance. So I don't have to answer the hypothetical insanity. His policies are bad policies for the nation. End of list. I don't know what we're arguing about. I don't know what we're yelling about. I don't know why this is a thing. But yet I keep seeing people on the political right talking about them. It's like they're not paying attention at all. And this is what happens when we have populism versus a basis in the understanding of conservatism. Conservatism, it is a theory based on study and a rational look at the world. Trump is not a conservative. Trump is a populist. I'm not saying that he didn't put out good policies because he actually governed like a conservative because that's where he took a lot of his inspiration from. But campaigns not like a conservative, engages policy not like a conservative. We got lucky the first time. I'm not going to say no. These things worked out for Tony better than than I thought. Not too shabby for Tony, as the expression would go. Not a conservative. We don't have to question whether or not he's a conservative. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? And I'm not putting him and Trump in the same category. Much rather have Trump. What are you, crazy? Uh, RFK Jr. is a progressive. Dennis Kucinich, the communist, is his campaign manager. What are we talking about here? And um, saying vaccines cause autism is, uh, is to me, uh, you're going to have to explain that one to people, and I give you no defense. Just you figure it out. But we got to stop with this idea that somehow it, this, is, this would be a good choice. This wouldn't be a good choice. This would be a terrible choice. Better than Biden doesn't necessarily mean good choice. Maybe a better person than Biden. Not necessarily better on the policy. Speaking of policies, what's our plan in Ukraine? That story coming up. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. The war continues in Ukraine, and Russia continues to try and press Ukraine desperate, desperate 
to get more and more help to stop the Russian invasion, including just just flat out calling out the United States and others. Why aren't we a NATO nation already? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Guys, so good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Well, now you've got this NATO meeting going on in Lithuania and you have uh, President Biden who is there in the UK kind of embarrassing himself with King Charles about where he was walking and once again uh, getting lost. Uh, but you you have this this praise from Biden of NATO and Jen Stoltenberg, Jen Stoltenberg, uh, right, who runs NATO and, and you've got the, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, Letting everybody know that, you know, uh, the, the, the table is there. I mean, everything is set for Ukraine to become a NATO member. So we're committed to what's called NATO's open door, uh, to welcoming new members when they're ready for membership and when all of the allies agree uh, to invite them in. Ukraine has made good progress in that direction, and that's going to be reflected at the summit. At the same time, the Ukrainians and others are the first to acknowledge that they have more work to do, uh, continuing to reform their military, continuing to deepen democratic reforms. Uh, you're going to see that come out of the summit as well. Uh, the bottom line is this. Here in Vilnius, a really robust package of support for Ukraine, political support, practical support, and further progress down the road toward uh, membership in NATO. So membership is indeed on the table, which is strange because part of Russia's rationale for saying it's time to go into Ukraine is really to try and create a situation that prevents Ukraine from joining NATO. I mean, that part of their plan failed miserably, but when it comes to plans, what exactly is the U.S. plan? Exactly how much money is going to be spent when is success actually achieved? Noah Rothman joins me right now from National Review, nationalreview.com. He writes extensively on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, I will get into the, uh, the whole thing about NATO, but I wanted to start in this conversation about cluster munitions. It was Joe Biden saying in, in a interview that America is low on 155 millimeter rounds. Now, whether that's true or, or not true, whether he got it correct or incorrect, a very weird thing uh, to say. And then to make this decision that cluster munitions, something that is not allowed by over 100 countries around the globe, and we're going to be sending those to Ukraine. If I'm in a fight, Noah, if I'm at war, everything is on the table. I don't believe in, no, you're not allowed to do this, that, and the other. If I have declared war via the U.S. Congress, everything is on the table. This is certainly not that situation. This is U.S. support of Ukraine. This is different. Talk to me about the cluster munitions, and is this a mountain out of a molehill, or is this a story that requires attention? I think it's a far more complicated issue than sound bites would be able to do it justice. So we are not party to the treaties that ban these weapons. And for a good reason, in part, because, well, the reason why they're so frustrating is because they have a fail rate. Now, we can argue what the fail rate is, but there's unexploded ordnance that's associated with these munitions. And they can linger on the battlefields for years and injure civilians. And it's much the same as landmines, which, by the way, are subject to prohibitive treaties in a lot countries that depend on the United States to not be signatory to them. Why? Because they depend on the United States to do a lot of things that they don't do. Same unexploded ordnance problem is, is the same problem with landmines, but we need them on the ground in, for example, the DMZ and the Korean Peninsula. We aren't signatory to this treaty because we may have to use them at a certain point. 
the British, the French, I don't know if they have that problem. Um, is this a useful tool on the battlefields of Ukraine? I can't say one way or the other. They're valuable for clearing trenches, uh, and that's of much use now. But the Ukrainians wouldn't be in this position if the Biden administration had assented to sending them fixed-wing aircraft in order to to have a combined arms counteroffensive, which they lack right now. But the Biden administration is now inviting a lot of moral opprobrium that they're very sensitive to from Western European quarters. Democrats in particular are very sensitive to those criticisms, but they're opening themselves up to that criticism now because of decisions they made earlier that I don't think are particularly defensible. So the administration's approach here it's kind of inscrutable and doesn't really make a lot of strategic sense. It's very improvisatory. And I think, frankly, they're improvising their way through this conflict. Let me and you can tell they're very uncomfortable with it. So let me uh, just take what you said. And if, if I were to uh, take that and try and understand it. If the Biden administration had been serious about helping Ukraine stop Russia, they would have given them them all of this ex- uh, over a year ago. But they decided then it wasn't OK. And now they decided it is OK. And that's creating them a lot of heartache because they seem to have changed their mind about how you approach this. So the question is, why did they change their mind? First of all, do I have it right as you stated it? And secondly, why did they change their mind? A, I think you have it right. And B, I don't know, but I would speculate, and I think it's hard to avoid speculating, that the Biden administration is, is uncomfortable with the trajectory of A, this war, and B, the counteroffensive, as it's been unfolding with very, very slow progress uh, in areas of this country that are very heavily mined, that are fortified with some of the most d- deep strategic fortifications that we've seen on European soil since World War II. And it's been slow going for the Ukrainians. And if they think that this can shake this up, maybe they think that's a valuable enterprise because we're heading into an election cycle. And this is going to be a difficult issue for them. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, nationalreview.com. In our conversations, and we have discussed this plenty over the past year, the conversation constantly comes back to Biden policy, Biden position, and the idea of what is winning what is success in all of this and of course we argue success is stopping uh, the russian invasion stopping putin putting an, an end to it if we now think that the ukrainians can't keep up and therefore they need this need that need the other well how many things are they going to need and in how many ways is the u.s going to say yes the maybe better said, what's the red line for the U.S.? Is it actual troops? Is it something else? When does the United States say to Ukraine, you haven't gotten it done yet? Sorry, we're out. Well, uh, first of all, I think we under we overestimate our capacity to influence either of the combatants on the battlefield. Uh, whether our support is provided or not, the fighting doesn't um, the condition that would pre- follow if, for example, the West were to just pull out of this, out of our support for Ukraine, it wouldn't stop the fighting. It would just result in more Ukrainian casualties, and it would push the fighting, if ever, closer to NATO borders. And that's the primary consideration for uh, Washington. Joe, Biden's, Joe Biden has to balance the considerations on the battlefield, sure. But his biggest problem is keeping all of NATO's 31 members in the same tent. And there are the very mixed minds on this conflict. Um, Western Europeans may be a little less gung-ho than Eastern Europeans. Uh, Eastern Europeans uh, 
of uh, Romania, Bulgaria, the Baltic states, they and in NATO, they want this conflict to be prosecuted with no holds barred. And they can go their own way. They can go rogue and thereby jeopardize every member of the alliance. So Joe Biden has a difficult balancing act here to perform. And I don't think it's really incumbent on him to be able to say, well, we're just pulling out now because you haven't met some sort of arbitrary uh, uh, level of, uh, of territories uh, reclaimed over the course of a certain period of time. We just simply can't establish those distinctions. Those distinctions would be erased, and we would have to go back on them and look foolish in the process. So in that sense, I'm sympathetic to the Biden administration. That's the only one sympathetic to the Biden administration. Otherwise, their behavior has been uh, really improvisatory and short-sighted. This all has to do, again, with what's the plan. You've got Vladimir Zelensky, who's slapping NATO around. Why haven't we been invited to join yet? Exactly how long are you going to wait? What's wrong with you people? You heard uh, Secretary Anthony Blinken saying, you know, the door is uh, open and there's good progress. Zelensky doing himself any favors here? Oh, I don't think he has anything else that he can say. Of course he wants NATO membership. He wants to be invited yesterday and he wants ascension yesterday. I mean, that's going to be Ukraine's position. And it was Ukraine's position prior to Zelensky's ascension to that role. That was uh, Poroshenko government's position, too. Um, what I heard from Secretary Blinken, there was a lot of diplomatic speak for nothing at all. Uh, if you followed NATO, uh, Ukraine's ascension path over the course of the last 20 years, it looks exactly like it looked in August of 2008 in the Bucharest summit. At which point uh, there was a uh, MAP, MAP, Ascension Plan for Ukraine in place. And everything was going according to plan. And every, you know, the, every intention, it was an open door then too, right? But the Ascension, the, the criteria for Ascension were never going to be met. It was, an, it was an option that Ukraine couldn't exercise. Everybody was simply on the, on the same page saying, yeah, in theory, in sentiment, we like Ascension. But there are a bunch of criteria that you're not going to meet, which is why Zelensky is very, very frustrated, saying, I want membership yesterday and I want a, a timeline and I want firm criteria that we can meet. And he's very mad. And then the people who don't want NATO expanded are also very mad because they think that this is an overextension of NATO's commitments. And what it is is nothing. It's no different from the conditions that have prevailed since the summer of 2008. At least, according, at least that's how I view it. Let's take a look at Russia's point of view just for a moment. Russia didn't want Ukraine to be a part of NATO in any way, shape, or form. They didn't want Ukraine to have this option. They didn't want NATO again on their border, and they were willing to fight to ensure it didn't happen. Now Finland is a NATO member, Sweden's a NATO member, and Ukraine's on the doorstep. How is that not looked upon by Russian leadership and Russian oligarchs as a complete and total failure from Vladimir Putin in this incursion, in this invasion of Ukraine? Well, I'll tell you why, because the idea that NATO's ascent or Ukraine's ascension to NATO was some sort of existential threat for Russia was entirely pretextual. That's why they don't they're not reacting as though it's an existential threat when the NATO border on their actual border expands by 5000 kilometers. Because it was never the point. It was always a pretext designed to justify a land grab, the subsumation of Ukraine and its people into the Russian Federation by any means necessary. It was never about NATO, because as I said in the prior segment, NATO ascension for Ukraine and Georgia, by the way, was halted in 2008, stalled perpetually, has not advanced beyond that point. Everybody watches this closely knows that, especially the Kremlin. So when they see NATO expansion, 
They don't react to it because NATO is a defensive alliance and they behave defensively. And Moscow knows that and understands that. And they also understand that Ukraine's ascension is in the far off future. It is not a, a, a near term possibility or even medium term possibility. It was always a pretext. And anybody who lent it quite credence advanced the Kremlin's narratives. We spoke the, the other week uh, with uh, Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, about this quote-unquote coup attempt that took place with Prigozhin and, and the Wagner PMC, that private military company. And now, where is Wagner? I uh, Not Wagner. Where is uh, Prigozhin, you know, the leader here? Where, where, where is he? What's happening? Is his life in, in, in danger? What took place? And, and what um, Major Lyon said is, first, th- this wasn't a coup. It was a mutiny. Uh, and and secondly, there's no way to see this as Putin as specifically weaker amongst his people and things being weaker involving Ukraine because they still have bodies to throw uh, at the issue. And there doesn't seem to be a place where Putin really leaves without some kind of land. He gets the Donbass. He gets something. It has to happen. In your view of what happened, would you call it a coup or a mutiny or or something else that took place when Prigozhin led these troops towards Moscow and then inexplicably decided to turn around? And where is Putin today? Not physically. I'm talking about in the leadership capacity of Russia. Is it as concrete as ever or is this a fluid, fluid kind of moment? Those are a lot of questions. Um, I'll try to take them as I remember them. Uh, I never called it a coup. It was always a mutiny or a rebellion, if you prefer. Indeed, in my view, arguably, but in my view, the most successful rebellion, the armed rebellion against the Russian government since 1921 and the Kronstadt sailors. Um, and it was only possible to dissolve it and defuse it because Vladimir Putin was not in the crosshairs of Prigozhin or the Wagner military. They were always, they wanted personnel changes in, in, uh, in the Ministry of Defense. That was their stated objective. That's how they managed to defuse it, because Putin himself was off the table. Is Putin less, slightly less positioned, better positioned among, uh, within his particular regime? And I, don't, I, I stress not the Russian polity, because the Russian polity is not a responsive democracy. I wouldn't be so sure. Um, the rewards that have been granted to the Wagner group as a result of this rebellion, they were supposed to be folded into the Russian Ministry of Defense. That was the predicate for, for this rebellion in the first place. And Prigozhin apparently gets to keep his head. Uh, the Wagner military group gets to keep their possessions abroad, specifically in the Middle East and Africa, which is very lucrative for them and the Russian government. And Prigozhin and the Wagner group aren't the only private military company that can marshal 30,000 30, troops and, and demonstrate the will to march on Moscow and get what they want. I mean, it's a precedent that's really hard to unset. And it's a dangerous one, especially in a country that, I mean, this is basically a medieval resolution to this conflict. You bought him off with a fiefdom in, uh, in the far abroad and in a, a, a military base in, in Belarus. It's like a, it couldn't be more medieval. So this is the society we're talking about. And if that is the solution to political conflict... I don't know why you wouldn't think that you could raise another private military, say, in Chechnya, to date your will to impose on Moscow something akin to an existential crisis and get what you want. It's, it's totally foreseeable. So, position today than he was last month, a month ago, rather, two months ago? I don't know. And I'd be hesitant to say he is.
Noah Rothman is his name. Find his work at National Review, nationalreview.com. Noah, I always appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. In Indianapolis, like in Bloomington, and many other places around the country, you see increases in violence, you see increases in unrest, and some of the political elite immediately say, well, the problem is too many guns. In Indiana, they've said, not only is the problem too many guns, the problem is all these lax gun laws. As a matter of fact, the problem is constitutional carry. We don't have gun permits anymore, and this is what's causing all the destruction. Does anybody believe that's the conversation, the reality in Indianapolis? Anybody who believes this is out of their mind. Anybody who believes this is a partisan, ignorant fool. The reality, the facts are clear that over the last eight years of Joe Hogg said as mayor, this city has gotten worse. The city has gotten more dangerous. He said he was going to be the law and order guy. He didn't need a public safety uh, commissioner. He was going to be his own public safety commissioner. And the city's unsafe. So when you take a look at a mayoral race that's taking place in Indianapolis, the capital of Indiana, Clearly, the answer is don't vote for the same thing that has led to so much absolute horror over the last eight years. Democrats are saying the problem is the NRA. Could you be more out of touch with where Hoosiers are? No, no. This Democratic Party doesn't give a damn about Hoosiers. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, guys. It's so good to be back. Good to be with you. Find everything at Tony Katz. Dot com. By the way, I'm looking at a picture of Joe Hogsett, the mayor right now. He looks sickly. And it just could it could just be a bad video, man. It could be a bad still shot from this video. He does. Did he shave his head for a purpose? Like sometimes he does that in, you know, I don't know if it's a cancer thing that he's doing in, you know, some kind of, you know, remembrance of or in conjunction with. Like there, there could be purposes for it. Sometimes it's a fundraiser. So I'm not I'm not making fun of him for doing that. I'm saying it's not a look, good look for him. He looks sickly. Now, he could be totally fine. And again, it's just this picture. But I caught it on Wish TV. And I was like, oh, oh, that's really, really bad. But that's not the story. The story is, is that in Indianapolis, the Indianapolis City County Council has voted to pass a gun control ordinance, Proposal 156. This just got passed. A vote of 18 to 5. Proposal 156 requires that you raise the age to purchase a gun in the city to 21. It bans assault rifles, quote unquote, uh, within the city limits and mandates a license to carry. You understand that none of these things change the societal issues that we face, change the, changes the cultural rot. None of these things will do anything for those people who are illegally carrying guns and committing crimes with guns. This is all virtue signaling nonsense. Not a single person is safer in Indianapolis or in any city, that, mind you, if you were to engage this. Constitutional carry states that you do not need a permit from the state to carry a firearm. You're still going through a background check because there are federal laws at play. But you don't need a permit from the state, which I, of course, agree with. You should not have to pay for your rights. 
which is what the people who uh, value permits are saying, that you should have to pay to have the right to carry a firearm. In the same way you should not have to pay to vote, which would be known as a poll tax, you should not have to pay to have your Second Amendment rights. Which is why if we're going to talk about the need for ID and Republicans are pushing uh, on, on federal elections, you have to have an ID to vote, which I absolutely agree with. All IDs from the state must be given free of charge. Must be given free of charge. You should be able to get an ID without any cost. You have to. Otherwise, if you're telling somebody they got to pay for their ID, that's a poll tax. Now, you could say, well, Tony, there are fees associated with a driver's license. Note, I didn't say driver's license. I said an ID. So you can do it with just uh, some level of ID card. That is free. Well, it gets paid for by taxes. You are paying for it anyway. Can we please just focus a little? It's all I'm asking. The issue with crime in our cities has nothing to do with permitless carry. There are plenty of blue states and blue cities that have all the gun laws in the world and you're not even allowed to have a firearm that have massive crime issues and issues involving weapons. It has nothing to do with permitless carry. This is a lie being told by the Indianapolis City County Council, which is dominated by the Democratic Party. Lying to the people of Indianapolis. It's virtue signaling, garbage nonsense. No leadership at play here. Absolutely, positively none. There is no leadership at play here. You want to ban assault rifles? You don't even know what you're saying. If I were to take a poll of every Democrat on the city county council, heck, every Republican, to the extent that, well, there are six Republicans on the city county council, You think I could get them to actually define what it is? Assault rifle. They don't know what they're saying. These are the people who believe that the AR and AR-15 stands for assault rifle. They don't know what any of it means. They don't understand anything about firearms. They don't have to. They get the talking point from on high. They try and bring it down low, and that's all they do. If people in Indianapolis neighborhoods or people in Bloomington neighborhoods actually believe that banning assault rifles will make people safer, they can believe it all they want. But I can also make the streets safer if I say you're not allowed to drive after 6 p.m. What? It's the same exact argument. Do you know that I could reduce auto fatalities 100% If we just stopped, if I simply could, via the stroke of a pen, eliminate driving after 6 p.m., eliminate auto injuries and auto deaths 100%. It is the same mathematics. And if you want to sit here and tell me that if they could do this with firearms, they could do this with anything, I'll believe you. And if other people want to say, oh, that's ridiculous, oh, you're just doing the slippery slope, the slippery slope is all there ever is. But I'm actually engaged in a much different conversation. I'm engaged in the conversation that you don't make people safer, law-abiding citizens safer, by telling them that they're not allowed to have their rights. You don't make law-abiding citizens safer by limiting their ability to utilize the law by taking rights away from them. 
No one's life is safer. As a matter of fact, their life is in more peril and is far worse. Because if you say to me, they don't have to worry about the threat on the street, I'll say to you, is the government on the street? Then yes, they have to worry. Tony, we've got a crisis. I don't disagree. I don't disagree with how absolutely horrible things are. I told you I was in, I was in Vegas over the weekend. Um, very rarely in my life have I seen somebody actually tweaking. Like someone clearly on meth and clearly out of their head. Oh, I watched it. Saw it happen with my own eyes. Saw people passed out on the streets. Well, Tony, it's Vegas. No, this was different. This was different. I actually, one morning I had stepped out. I want to call my wife and see what was going on. I figure I'll take a little walk, get some fresh air. There's no fresh air. There's no fresh air between the stench and the weed. There's no fresh air. I went back inside. It was, it was, oh, Vegas is seedy. Vegas is, but then again, isn't every downtown just awful? It's all we're talking about. It's all we're seeing. Every downtown is just absolutely awful. Awful, indeed. And there's no end in sight because so many of these downtowns won't take a look at what it is they're doing as policy and they won't take a look at what's actually causing these issues, these societal rot issues. This is societal. This is cultural. What it is that that we're seeing. How we're allowing these things to happen because we won't take a look at underlying causes. We say, oh, the problem is the guns. Get rid of the guns. You think constitutional carry is the issue? Of course you're wrong. You think banning an assault rifle that you can't describe is the issue? Of course you're wrong. And most importantly, you're going to raise the age to 21? I want to raise the voting age to 25. Because clearly, if we're going to argue these people aren't old enough, well, then they can't be old enough to vote at 18. You can't tell me that the right to vote is covered at such a young age, but the right to own a firearm is not. You could do more damage with a vote than you can with a firearm. Just take a look at what's happened to this city because of voting for people like Joe Hogsett and the Democratic Party. This city meaning the city of Indianapolis. But you can point to a lot of Democratic-run cities and make the same exact argument. But the best was in, in, in having this, this conversation, as the city county council did in voting for this, one of the representatives, Allie Brown, was uh, deciding that she was gonna, she was gonna make a, a, a statement. She was gonna make a statement, I tell you, and she was uh, gonna tell you, you know, when exactly, you know, people are telling her when are when is this city county council gonna make a difference? And and this was her. When are y'all gonna have the balls to just do something about it? And that's what we're doing. Oh, I love that so very much. This is the same Democrat, Allie Brown, who is very happy to see a hotel come to Indianapolis because it meant good union-paying jobs. Good-paying union jobs. Maybe it was good union-paying, good-paying union. Good-paying union jobs. There it is. She didn't care about jobs. She cared that they were union jobs. That's all that mattered. So this is a real, real partisan in Allie Brown. But this is great. When are y'all going to have the balls to just do something about it? And that's what we're doing. 
If Allie Brown actually wanted to do something about it, if the Democrats, which control the Indianapolis City County Council, Vop Ossoli and the rest of these failures wanted to do something about it, they would demand that the mayor, Joe Hogsett, hire a public safety director, a public safety commissioner. They would demand it. They would demand that something be done by the governor, that we actually get to root causes and we start making the streets safer. But they don't. Instead, they're all about the window dressing. Everything in 2020 is Black Lives Matter this, Black Lives Matter that. What does the city do? They vote to paint Black Lives Matter on the streets. You think they actually made any black life better in Indianapolis? Of course not. Because that might have involved work. Might have involved honesty. It might have involved somebody losing their position of power. But painting on the street... We could do that. My gosh, look how good we are. We're making America better. Aren't we wonderful? Don't forget to vote now. I wonder how long the people of Indianapolis will continue to allow themselves to be just patted on the head while things happen in their rear. I just wonder how long they'll accept the lies and the garbage and the hate from this city county council. You think this means anything? When are y'all going to have the balls to just do something about it? That's the question that we should be asking the city county council. When are you all going to do something about the violence? And telling people they can't have an AR-15 is not the answer. Raising the age to carry a firearm is not the answer. This is garbage. This is the same window dressing that you as a city always do. I think we could start putting together the connections between how bad the leadership is and how bad the city is. And it's a shame because it's such an awesome city. It's been nine years that I've been in Indianapolis. Nine years on my main station, WIBC. When I moved to Indy, I was excited to show my wife and kids, look at this. How cool is this? And one of the, th- uh, the very cool things about Indianapolis that people do not give enough credit to, have you ever looked up? When you walk the streets of Indy, people look straight ahead, they look down, look up. There was some really incredible architecture going on in this city and the mix of things and some of the new buildings that are modern. Then you take a look at some of those old federal buildings. You're like, that's the brutalist style, which isn't attractive, but you got to recognize what it is. And then there's these these cool architectural flourishes. It's, it's really something else. It is tremendous. But the city was fun and exciting and vibrant. People don't feel that way today. And that's directly correlated to Joe Hogsett, the Indiana Democratic Party, the Democrat-run city county council, and their positions and views, and how they have failed the safety and welfare of the city of Indianapolis, which is what the Indianapolis voter needs to recognize going into the polls in November. They haven't made the city better. They've made the city worse. And yet they come to us and they scream about, you don't have the balls to do this. Wait, don't, don't look at me. I'm, I'm just quoting. All I'm doing is quoting. When are y'all going to have the balls to just do something about it? That's the question that needs to be asked by the people to the Indiana Democratic Party, to the city county council to the civic leaders with their names high on the signs of all the buildings. When are you going to do something about it? When are you going to demand a better city? 
Why are you so wholly political and so desperate for power that you'll keep a guy like Joe Hogsett in, in, in office for a third term when he's failed the city for eight years? And why would the residents, the citizens, actually be okay with this? Why? Because you can't vote for Republicans. Why? Why they oppose abortion. And well, you know that conversation's coming up for sure. Indianapolis, like many big cities, and cities like Bloomington and others, need to recognize that the answer to the question is sometimes the policies in place. Or the lack thereof, and the lack of willingness to actually enforce policies that need to be enforced. And certainly the lack of willingness in being able to look at root causes and really address issues that make people uncomfortable. Remember when uncomfortable conversations were an important thing? Well, this Democratic Party won't have them. And we need to. I'll give you the first one. Joe Hogsett can't lead Indianapolis. And Counselor Allie Brown is unserious, but great at the virtue signaling. Now let's talk about what's causing the violence and fix the problems. I'm Tony Katz. Former Attorney General Curtis Hill in the governor's race. Finally, this race is interesting. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Oh, man. Look, I I, I think the baggage is real on Curtis Hill. I think he's going to take the hits. I'm not saying he's going to win this primary. I'm saying he does have activists behind him. And I'm saying that Braun, Senator Mike Braun, Lieutenant Governor Suzanne Crouch, and businessman Eric Doden are a boring field of boring candidates who've done absolutely nothing to date. Curtis Hill shakes up this race, man. He's at least interesting, and it makes it interesting. And I don't think he's the only one getting in this race. I could be wrong, but I don't think we're done with possible candidates just yet. Keep watching, Indiana. Find everything at TonyCats.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.